If you don't mind, I'm going to dive right in. The expansive grace of God revealed in Jesus Christ, the, the, the limitless realities of his grace, the, the unbounded generosity of his heart are at the core of the gospel and the center of the church's mission. God, so fiercely in love with you, he sent his son who, while being crucified on the cross, shouts, forgive them, who descends into the depths of death's despair and shouts, it's finished, only to rise up in resurrected life, promising you can be made new. This this stunning, extravagant, generous God is at the core of the gospel. And at the same time, confronts us, challenges us, sort of breaks up the earth of our heart, kind of runs perpendicular to the, to the lines of our cultural moment and our, and our basic instincts. It's kind of at odds with the scripts. You know what I'm saying? Do you not know what I'm saying? Do I need to f- flesh this out? Uh, maybe Stanley Hauerwas will help. Duke theologian, author, in a book titled Resident Aliens. We believe that many Christians do not fully appreciate the odd way in which the church, when it is most faithful, goes about its business. We want to claim the church's oddness as essential to its faithfulness. So if I'm just hoping... As you leave this place today, you, you, will, you will find yourself being outrageously odd. <laughs> like, like crazy kind of strange. Now listen with me to a really odd story. It's in the Gospel of Mark. He left that place and came to his hometown. And the disciples followed him. On the Sabbath, he began teaching in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished. They said, where does this man get all this? What is this wisdom that's been given to him? What what power goes forth from his hands? Is not this the carpenter? The son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon, and are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. He said, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown, among his own kin, in his own house. And he could do no deeds of power among them. Except they leave his hands on a few who are sick and cured them. And he was amazed at their unbelief. He went about among their villages teaching. Then he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two. He told them 
to bring nothing for the journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belt, but to wear sandals, but not to put on two tunics. He said, whenever you enter a place, remain there until you leave. (laughs) And if you're not welcomed in a place, and if they refuse to hear you, as you leave, shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out, and they proclaimed that all should repent. And they cast out many demons, and they anointed with oil many who were sick, and they cured them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It's Mark 6, 1 through 13. Isn't that odd? I mean, it's so odd to me. This is odd to me. Uh, Verse 3. And they took offense at him. Jesus, gentle, mild, meek, precious, tender, little Jesus. They took offense at him? Jesus is offensive? This is odd. That was verse 3. This is odd. Verse 6. And he was amazed at their unbelief. Mom, Dad, Joseph, Judas, Simon, what? He was amazed at their unbelief. That's odd. This is odd, verse 12. So they went out and proclaimed that all should repent. Did they take time to get to know them? Did they, you know, like learn their name and and hear their story and honor their questions? They They just start shouting out, you should change. All of you, every one of you, you need to change. It's kind of odd. So here's what I was thinking we could do. Let's just walk through those odd statements. And if you're still here by the end, uh, we'll come to the table. Does that sound like a decent way forward? First odd statement, they took offense at him. That is just so odd to me. So Jesus has been touring the land and culture of the Bible. (laughs) When he's on the Israel side of things, uh, and he does amazing, miraculous things, he tells them, don't say anything to anybody. And then when he crosses over to the other side of the sea, to the Decapolis, to the region where it's irreligious, and he does amazing things, he basically sends them home, you should tell everybody. Isn't that odd? And finally, finally, he comes home. Home. Jesus gets to go home to the familiarity and the comfort. I can imagine Jesus walking into town and Joseph and Judas and Simon are like, hey, Jesus is home. Mary makes a nice chicken pot pie, a little vanilla ice cream afterwards. Home. When I, uh, when I was a little kid, we lived on the south side of Chicago for a couple of years. Both sets of grandparents lived here in Michigan, so when you're like four or five and you travel from Chicago to Battle Creek, it feels like an eternity. And finally, when we would start heading home, I can remember it so vividly. We'd get off the the highway, off to the exit to South Holland, uh, Illinois, and there was the Jewel Osco grocery store with the orange flags. And to this day, it still says home. Jewel Osco (laughs) is home. Or when I would go home for like fall break in college you know I'd leave Durfee Hall and like ride my bike a mile and a half 
to home, and I'd walk in the house, and I'd smell the apple pie. It's home. Home, you know, you get to take a deep breath. Your, your nervous system gets to settle down just for a little bit. You don't have to look behind you to see who's after you. You're home. Jesus gets to go home. He's home. And they take offense at him. Do you think they heard about the virgin birth? Maybe they forgot. 30 years later, it says he's in their synagogue and he's teaching. Uh, Mark doesn't tell us what he taught. Uh, We were left to imagine. I'm imagining he taught about the things he always taught about, the kingdom. The kingdom where where those who have... Those who are hungry have plenty of food, and those who are thirsty have plenty to drink. The kingdom, where justice reigns and righteousness rules. The kingdom, where the powerful get set aside so that the weak can emerge strong. The kingdom, you know? He starts announcing the kingdom, and they take offense at him. The kingdom, it runs perpendicular. The kingdom, it's at odds. This whole thing, this extravagant grace of God is not meant to be a pat on the back. You just keep doing you. How's that going, by the way? It's not, the, the gospel's not a blue ribbon for participation. It confronts us and, 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 and convicts us and calls us to something more. And Jesus started talking about it, and they took offense at him. Uh, how about, the, do you know the name Wendell Berry? You do now. I wrote an essay about 10 years ago. Christ is not to be fenced in under human control like some domestic creature. He's the wildest being in existence. Christ's life from the manger to the cross was an affront to the established powers of his time, and it is to the established powers of our time. Much is made in churches of the good news of the Gospels. Less is said of the Gospels' bad news. The bad news of the good news, it disrupts, it disorients, it calls for something more. Uh, there's a book titled The Kingdom, The Power, and the Glory by the author Tim Alberta. I'm just going to keep pressing on you for a little while. If Christians were so perceptibly failing to seek first the kingdom of God, instead prioritizing national identities, cultural squabbles, political agendas, who could blame unbelievers for concluding that the kingdom of God wasn't worth seeking at all? And they took offense at him. Uh, if that doesn't get you riled up, this will. Stanley Hauerwas, mainline American Protestantism, as is often the case, plodded wearily along as if nothing had changed. Like an aging dowager. A dowager is a, a widow whose husband has left her with a bunch of money and titles. Like an aging dowager living in a decaying mansion on the edge of town, bankrupt and penniless, house decaying around her, but acting as if her family still controlled the city. Our theologians and church leaders continue to think and act as if we were in charge as if the old arrangements were still valid. And they took offense at him. So let me try to put a point on it. Uh, Anytime you find yourself completely agreeing and entirely abiding by any system of power, social, economic, political, you miss the kingdom. It runs perpendicular. It's at odds. Of course they took offense at him. You can't just keep going on, going on. It radically reorients who we are. It's not just a blue ribbon. (laughs) 
You know what I'm saying? Well, here's another odd statement. And he was amazed at their unbelief. We think of faith, I think we tend to rationalize faith, you know? It's like uh, propositions and precepts and doc- dogma and doctrine. And, and then we, we kind of decide who's right, writer, <laughs> as opposed to those who are wronger, you know? And we try to clump ourselves in the writer group. And we then point and talk about the wronger group. I don't, it doesn't sound like that's what Mark's getting at here, like a set of propositions. It sounds like there's some, some relationship between Christ's capacity to accomplish the miraculous and their willingness to believe. He could do no deeds of power among them, and he was amazed at their unbelief. I was raised on the Heidelberg Catechism. Anybody know the Heidelberg Catechism? Uh, so all you smarties, how about Q&A 21? Oh, a little shame here. Uh, what is true faith? That is not only a certain knowledge by which I accept is true, all that God has revealed in his scriptures, but a wholehearted trust. It's not only a set of propositions that we ascend to. It's a trust. It's, a, it's an orientation of the heart. Now, now I've I got to be a little careful. It, faith is, cannot be thought of as a lever to get God to do something. Like, well, if you believed enough, if you had enough faith then God is sort of obligated. But at the same time, faith is this sort of orientation to the reality God might do something. God might act. God might show up. He sends the disciples out two by two. It's so odd. Take nothing with you except a staff. No bread, no bag, no money in your belt. You should wear shoes, but don't worry about having two tunics. I don't know, it's just odd. I'm thinking, hey, don't take all the stuff you're hanging on to, all the stuff you're clinging to. Trust me. Trust me. Participate in what I'm doing in the world. You just go. Watch me. Uh, Here's another odd statement. So they went out and proclaimed that all should repent. I just, I mean, I just think that's so funny. Like, they're walking around these villages, it's called the Triangle, and they're just walking in town. You all should change. You need to change. Wow. Like, isn't that odd? Uh, I mean, if you're, you, anybody grew up in the Reformed tradition, you hear the word repent, and you're like, oh, that's so warm and cozy inside. <laughs> we love talking about repent. Uh, Luther's first of the 95 theses, you know, uh, our Lord and Master... Jesus Christ, when he said, repent, willed that the whole life of the believer would be one of repentance. We tend to take repentance as like behavior modification. You should stop doing that. You're bad. Don't do that. And behavior modification is sort of like derivative of repentance, but it's not the real thing. Repentance is the orientation of the heart to the king of the kingdom. So of course you're going to change behavior, but it's not just about behavior modification. It's about orientation. It's not like the disciples aren't walking around talking about how bad you are, and God is so mad, and Christ is so disappointed, you should change. Rather, it's more like they're catching a glimpse of the glory of the kingdom, and they're like, you got to check it out. It's so beautiful. There's so much more. Repent, change, come on, the water's warm. It's so good. Why would you go on living that way? You know it's not working. 
Repent, change. What if it isn't like a swear word? What, what if it's an invitation? They, they were sent out and they proclaimed that all should repent. What good news? You have a chance. You're not determined to be stuck in that broken place. You have a chance to have life. It's so good. I was, uh, my daughter Lydia and I, we went to the movie The Iron Claw. Have you, anybody heard of The Iron Claw? Okay, good. Then I can keep talking about it. This is, uh, this is not a recommendation. Okay? <laughs> Asterisk by the sermon. Not a recommendation to go see The Iron Claw. The Iron Claw is a true story, so I got that going for me. Uh, about a WWE wrestling family. <laughs> I'm big into wrestling. No, just kidding. So the, the, the dad in the family was himself a professional wrestler and was rising the ranks of the WWE, uh, but never won like the pinnacle crown of whatever WWE, whatever it is, trophy. He thinks conspiratorially because the WWE elite kind of kept him from it. So he's got these four boys, and he is determined to make them the best wrestlers in the world. He presses them and pushes them, and his affection is dependent on how they perform in the ring. Not that any parent would ever do that to any of their children. So the, the movie, the wrestling part of the movie is really, it's like lettuce on a salad. And nobody eats a salad for the lettuce. You eat it for the stuff on the lettuce. The wrestling's like lettuce. It's really a, it's really a story about identity and belonging and love. And there's this refrain uh, throughout the movie of the dad says to the boys, be the toughest, strongest, most outstanding, successful. Be the toughest, the strongest, most outstanding, successful. It just keeps pounding them and pounding into them. It's a terribly sad movie. And I, I, I mean, I, I'm hearing that line, and, I, and I'm thinking, that's us. We live that. You've got to be the toughest. You've got to be the strongest. You've got to be the most outstanding. You've got to be the most successful. All the while, the kingdom, blessed are the poor. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the hungry. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the peacemakers. If you want to save your life, you've got to lose it. Love your enemy. Pray for those who persecute you. Repent. It's so much better. They went out and proclaimed that all should repent. What good news. Um, a couple Sundays ago, it might have been a couple months ago, I'm, I'm going to be opaque about timing so to keep you from wondering who I'm talking about. I was standing in the narthex there. That's the funny church word for lobby. Uh, <laughs> after the sermon, you all were walking down the center aisle uh, for a little bread, a little dab of juice, the kingdom. 
I was kind of in the back there watching you. I call it sort of like watching praying. It's not like my eyes are closed praying, but it's more like, oh, I know you. I know some of your story. That kind of watching praying, you know what I mean? Uh, Candy came forward. She's in hospice now. She, she's staring death in the face. She came forward looking for something more, looking for something better. There was a young mom. Data suggests that young moms, 61% of young moms feel uh, extremely alone. So she's walking down the aisle, keeping her kids in line. I don't know. I'm maybe reading into it. It seemed kind of tired to me. There was a college student, big, tall, strong-looking guy. By appearances, got it all together. I know he's wondering who he can love and how to love and if he can be loved. He's coming forward for something more, for something better. So I'm standing back there, and I'm watching all this happen, and I notice there's a a man younger than me standing next to me, red sweatshirt, hood, hoodie. Uh, Skin was kind of leathery. Suggested maybe things have been kind of hard. His, his jeans told a story. He's been around. I could see on his neck there were tattoos of tears falling down his neck. I started to make meaning about, like, what, 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 what is that? I kind of said, hey, I'm John. Can you help me with your name? And he said, Jeff, and we're standing there, and you all are coming down. And he he pointed to the table with his head, kind of nods like this, and he said, is it okay? In other words, is it okay for me to, to want more? Is it okay for me to want something better? Is it okay? Of course it's okay. Of course. There's so much more. It's so much better. Repent. Come awake. Come alive. There's more. Amen? Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.